December 1st, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is David Weinshanker. Hi, David. Hello. He is professor of human genetics at Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, his lab uses a whole host of tools and approaches to understand the role of catecholamine transmission in behavior and disease. Around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Matt Wynott. Hello. We've got a uh, grad student, Alyssa Petko, a first-timer. Welcome. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Old-timer. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So a big focus of your lab is the locus ceruleus, uh, which is the brainstem nucleus that's the source of diffuse adrenergic innervation throughout the CNS and is um, an intersection for a host of different inputs and outputs that influence all kinds of things, arousal, stress, sleep, and adaptive cognition. Um, can you take a minute to describe the key features of this nucleus as as, as, as you um, are studying it from first an anatomical viewpoint and then um, in order to set up some of the larger questions about function? Because I think, you know... Sure. Actually, I think you just gave a, a very nice summary <laughs> of it yourself right there. So, um, so as you mentioned, the locus ruleus, uh, it's a bilateral nucleus just under the ventricle in the brainstem. Um, and it is the major source of norepinephrine throughout the brain. Uh, so norepinephrine, um, as most of you know, is a hormone and neurotransmitter. It's the major neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system, um, but it's also uh, you know, found in the brain centrally. Uh, and there are, gosh, I think there's about six or so different neuroadrenergic cell groups in the brainstem. The locus ceruleus is the largest of them. So if you were to if you were to like take norepinephrine from the whole brain and ask how much of that comes from the locus ceruleus, it's it's over half of it comes from that that one nucleus. Um, it mostly innervates the the forebrain. So there's kind of there's kind of two main neurogenergic projections uh, in the brain. Um, the locus ceruleus is the, is the major um, ascending pr uh, projection um, from the brainstem to the forebrain. Uh, it goes through the dorsal neurogenergic bundle and innervates structures such as the hippocampus and the frontal cortex uh, and even all the way up to the olfactory bowl. Um, and then the ventral neurogenergic bundle is most, uh, most the source of that is mostly the A1 and A2 uh, neurogenergic cell groups in the, in the NTS. Um, so, um, so there's, uh, there's, there's differences in exactly where these cell populations are located and in their projection patterns. But if you were to, if you were to look, say, in the frontal cortex and ask how much of the norepinephrine in the frontal cortex comes from the locus ceruleus, it's close to 100%. Okay, but in terms of the convergence, the inputs, mm. the inputs to the locus, to the locus ceruleus, how much of this, can we think of it as a convergence? So we have autonomic, we have sensory, we have, um, what else do we have? We have sympathetic, uh, all kinds of inputs coming in. Are they, is there a Topology. How are we to understand? I mean, is are have these things sort of been modeled? Can you say anything about? Yeah, you know, um, there. As you mentioned, you know, there are many, many different inputs to the locus ceruleus, and in fact, they, they haven't been especially well characterized. Um, you know, there's there's certainly um, there's certainly inputs coming from the periphery. Uh, so so things like um, so different different uh, sensory systems uh, have inputs to the locus ceruleus. Um, the vagus nerve doesn't 
doesn't interbit directly project to the locus ceruleus, but if you stimulate the vagus nerve, you get massive locus ceruleus activation. Uh, and then there's also top-down um, inputs, you know, from you know from the frontal cortex. Uh, there's big inputs from um, uh, hypothalamic uh, nuclei. There are inputs from stress systems like the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis and the amygdala. So there's a lot of information. Uh, converging on the locus ceruleus, and then it in turn, um, you know, relays information throughout the brain. How about LC neurons in terms of electrophysiology? Are they quite diverse? If you do mm. various things, or do they pretty much all do the same thing? Yeah, it, you know, in between. Probably. Yeah, that's an inter- that's an interesting question. So one one interesting thing about locus ceruleus neurons is that they're they are extensively gap junction, and so they do tend to fire synchronously. Um, they share a lot of electrophysiological properties and information. Uh, in a resting state, locus ceruleus neurons, um, so locus ceruleus neurons have two main firing rates. Um, there's a low tonic firing rate and then a high phasic firing rate. So if you were just to record from locus ceruleus neurons in, in a resting animal or an anesthetized animal, you would see a low, low tonic firing in pretty much every neuron that you recorded from. So somewhere between 0.5 and 2 hertz, just very regularly spaced firing. Um, the locus really shifts into kind of a bursting phasic firing phase uh, under certain environmental conditions, mostly those that um, are important, you know, that, that the animal really needs to be aroused and pay attention to. So, for example, stress or pain, um, or, or other stimuli like that shift the locus ceruleus neurons into, into a high bursting state um, where they can fire upwards of 15 to 20 hertz rather than like, you know, one or two hertz. Uh, and, um, yeah, <clears throat> the difference between high phasic bursting and low tonic bursting, it's not only the pattern of the neurons firing, but the way that they release neuromodulators. Um, so, for example, norepinephrine itself if you were to if you were to, to look at um, the same number of action potentials, but whether they were um, regularly spaced like one per second for five seconds or all five action potentials all like in, in a burst, the, even though it's the same number of action potentials, more norepinephrine would be released during the burst than over the the five that were spread out. Um, so that so the firing pattern. Uh, can determine how much norepinephrine is released. The other thing about norepinephrine neurons is that they're not just norepinephrine neurons. So norepinephr- so most neurons have both uh, a small mo- at least one small molecule neurotransmitter, but also synthesize other neuromodulators like neuropeptides. So locus ceruleus neurons, in addition to norepinephrine, also make many neuropeptides, uh, including galanin, neuropeptide Y, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, CART, and kephalin. Uh, and neuropeptides are generally preferentially released under conditions of very high bursting excitability. So not only do the different firing patterns determine the amount of norepinephrine that's released, but what else is released along with norepinephrine that can modulate the noradrenergic tone. They also make dopamine. They do make <laughs> dopamine. So do- dopamine is in the biosynthetic pathway is a precursor for norepinephrine. So you can't make norepinephrine without dopamine. So these neurons make, uh, in the biosynthetic pathway, they make dopamine, and then they have, um, so all of the enzymes to make dopamine are the same as in a dopamine neuron, um, 
But norepinephrine neurons have an extra enzyme called dopamine beta-hydroxylase that is actually localized inside the synaptic vesicles where they convert the dopamine to norepinephrine. But that conversion isn't 100%. So when locus to release neurons get stimulated and release norepinephrine, they're probably releasing some dopamine as well. And some, there's a few recent studies suggesting that those have profound effects in certain regions of the brain, uh, like the hippocampus. Can that, uh, can the ratio of norepinephrine to dopamine released be changed by pattern? Can that be changed by pattern? So I don't know if that's actually been looked at. My guess would be no. Maybe some voltammetry person might want to look at something. You can't. The you electrochemical can't. reaction is identical for norepinephrine and dopamine. Yeah, the so you can't. The problem with voltammetry. Oh. So that wouldn't work. <laughs> so my guess is no, and the reason is, and the reason is that because because the um, the conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine takes place inside of the synaptic vesicles. Every single vesicle is going to have some ratio of norepinephrine to dopamine. So a single vesicle fusing is going to release a little bit, you know, at least some of both. So changing the firing properties will change the overall amount of total catecholamines that are released, but probably not the ratio of norepinephrine to dopamine. So, oh, go ahead. Do they release L-DOPA as well as tyrosine? Do they release L-DOPA? I guess you know, um, I guess if not all the I guess if aromatic acid decarboxylase isn't working very well and it's not converting the L-dopa to dopamine as much, then I I imagine I was just thinking they're precursors down the synthetic pathway. So mm-hmm. if it releases dopamine, maybe it releases. They have to get into the vesicle. Is can L-dopa cross under the vesicular transporter? That's the question you're really asking. Right. Can L does VMAT take up? I actually don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Just curious. So asking a question that's obviously inspired by the dopamine system, apologies. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot more complexity or there's a, it, people real, now realize there's a lot more co- complexity in sort of the heterogeneity of the neurons you find in the ventral tegmental area, you know, primary dopamine um, um, production nucleus. Have people been looking at the locus cerulius and sort of looking at, you know, what what percentage of the neurons in the locus cerulius are, you know, noradrenergic? And, you know, do you see BGLU2 or, you know, other... Can these, um, obviously they're releasing a whole host of neuropeptides as well, but are you seeing these other neurotransmitters as well, you know, the, you know, GABA and glutamate that can also be released from these uh, uh, noradrenergic neurons as well? So I think not as much work has been done in the locus release compared to the dopamine systems, which is true for any question you <laughs> want to ask. Uh, but um, but my, uh, my understanding is, at least at a first pass, you do not have the neurochemical diversity uh, in the locus ceruleus neurons as you do, for example, in the VTA. So I don't think um, the vesicular glutamate transporters are particularly highly expressed in the locus ceruleus. I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence that stimulation of LC neurons you know, um, co- causes uh, amp-mediated postsynaptic potentials or anything like that. Um, to me, the, d- the diversity in the locus ceruleus neurons is... Um, Right now is really uh, the neuro the the soup of different neuropeptides. So, for example, eighty to, at least in a rat, um, eighty to ninety percent of the locus ceruleus neurons co-express galanin, but only about twenty five percent co-express neuropeptide Y. And so you can get um, sort of different combinations of, of these different modulatory peptides. And uh, you know, we would love to know what they're doing. I mean, that's not, to me, that's one of the frontiers of not just locus ceruleus research, but all neuroscience research is really being able to tease apart and understand um, what these co-release neuromodulators do and how they interact. 
and really what, you know, the, for me, the future um, te- from a technological standpoint is figuring out ways how do you measure neuropeptide release because it's really not very feasible right now with any of the techniques that we have. So do we view this as, since everything is so interconnected by a gap junction, is this just sort of a broadcast signal that kind of just goes out there and then gets parsed into meaning at the target sites? Or like how, mm-hmm. it, it, what is the kind of... Yeah, I mean, I mean, some some people certainly feel that way. Um, so, so one delineation of the locus release architecture is that the most of the dorsal noradrenergic neurons um, proje- are, are ascending projections up to the cortex and hippocampus, um, whereas some of the the ventral neurons actually project to spinal cord. So that's so that's that's kind of one one distinction. Um, but uh, yes, because they're gap junction, you know, I, I do think a lot of the you know the neurons do tend to fire synchronously, and so I do think you get some kind of like a global tone uh, when it's activated. So one thing that can modulate that is even though noradrenergic projections from the locus ceruleus do go to most of the brain, the density of those fibers and the architecture of those fibers um, are, are different. So for example, um, Barry Waterhouse recently published a couple papers. Um, not looking just at the whole brain, but just sub sub regions of the of the prefrontal cortex, um, and the, and he found that that locus release projections to different parts of the prefrontal cortex have very different properties in terms of morphology and architecture and density. So, for example, um, locus release from projections to the um, prelimbic prefrontal cortex are are very dense, and there's like a lot of varicosities and a lot of syn- potentially synaptic release sites. Whereas um, projections to the premotor cortex are quite sparse, so even if those neurons, even if all the neurons are getting activated to a similar degree, the amount of neurogenergic transmission is really going to depend on uh, the density and architecture of the of the projections to that particular region. Uh, the way I hear people speak about norepinephrine, it's always just this sort of tonic constant. Firing more, firing less. There isn't anything like um, norepinephrine release being strongly coupled in time to some particular event. Uh, so that's one of the differences with dopamine mat studies. Dopamine release that's strongly connected in time to particular events. In fact, that's the only kind of dopamine that's easily measured. Yes. Uh, but anyway, that's easily measured, and there are events that are associated with dopamine release. Are there mm-hmm. events like that that are associated with norepinephrine release? Yeah. Uh, so, so the the first one that comes to mind are, are sleep wake cycles. So, um, locus ceruleus neurons are in general very active during wake. Uh, they're fairly inactive during slow wave sleep, slow wave sleep, and they're completely off during REM sleep. Um, so that would be you know, so that would be one um, sort of behavioral distinction where the neurons are, are you know have different firing rates depending on behavioral state. Um, another would be you know and there are there are a lot of as I mentioned before you know, there are a lot of things that um, that strongly activate the neuro, the noradrenergic neurons in the locus ceruleus and probably the most the one that people study the most is stress. So um, so stressful events like either um, emotional stress. Or physical stress, like a foot shock or something like that, uh, both in um, uh, uh, rodents and non-human primates, strongly uh, increase locus ceruleus activity. So, 
again, though, that's like increasing and decreasing, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. about, is there a moment? I get, well, you and I may be on different timescales. Maybe. I think of everything <laughs> on the like 100 millisecond timescale uh, or less, and, and sleep and wakefulness do not fall in that timescale. Okay, gotcha. Uh, whereas dopamine release is, you know, you can see one second of enhanced dopamine release after a reward or something like that. Uh, I'm wondering if there was a immediate stress or a foot shot, yes. would there be an immediate release of norepinephrine in the cortex that would yes. be like an event in the cortex? Yes. Uh-huh. So, so how, long just, does it la- how long does it last if you shock them? So it goes up fast? Does it hang around until... I and mean, what's the time scale of like what's it would be the time oh, scale of like, you know? Um you know it's pro so gosh. Uh, you know that that's been a little harder to actually measure because um well for one thing, um a lot of norepinephrine is not released synaptically and the adrenergic receptors are first of all they're G protein coupled, they're not, you know, they're not ion channels. And so, so, you know, measuring like these sub-sec, sub-second um, excitatory or inhibitory events, is, it, it's much more difficult um, because it's, most, it's mostly signals by volume transmission. So it takes a little while for the neurotransmitter to get to its target. Um, and because the targets rely on second messenger systems rather than then just opening an ion channel. Um, so, you know, so, so my feeling is that... Um, most of the time, it probably functions more on the order of seconds to minutes rather than rather than sort of sub-second bursts and increases and decreases. I can't remember the details of it, but uh, Michael Brukas had a paper, I think, last year, a couple mm-hmm. years ago, um, where he was talking about the different firing patterns, and I can't remember the directionality of it, but yes. if he was... Uh, he was could get, um, I think, anxiolytic-like effects with tonic firing, but not the fa- or I, I can't remember the details, but the firing pattern in sort of a slower um, time frame actually had behaviorally relevant effects. Yeah, that, that's true. So um, so what he, what he was doing is he was using um, optogenetic techniques to, uh, uh, to control the firing patterns of locus ceruleus neurons and then looking at, um, looking at different behaviors. And the main thing that he found is that so I mentioned that um, at rest, locus ceruleus neurons fire at, at a low tonic frequency of about between 0.5 and 2 hertz. When he was able to drive that tonic frequency higher um, to about you know, 5 to 8 hertz, he saw potent an- anxiogenic effects. So the, so the animals, um, act, you know, so the animals uh, acted as though they were having sort of increased stress or anxiety responses. When he... Um, when he changed the firing pattern, so he increased the firing, but in a burst pattern, rather instead of the the, um, the tonic firing pattern, he he did not see the uh, the increase in, in anxiety like behavior. So to switch gears a little bit, you talked a lot about today about <clears throat> sort of the role of you know locus ceruleus, um, you know noradrenergic neurons and neurodegenerative diseases, mm-hmm. which again is you know highly understudied. Um, I was wondering if you could comment about, um, when talk, give a little bit of a history about that, sure. uh, about how locus ceruleus neurons are, you know, implicated as sort of being these, you know, um, precursor, you know, the first sort of cells that start dying, but also 
do you see that overall locus ceruleus or uh, noradrenergic neurons? You know, you mentioned sort of the NTS. You know, is it yeah. something specific about the locus ceruleus, or is it something more generalized to sort of all noradrenergic neurons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so for Alzheimer's disease, for example, you know, it's it's been known since I want to say the late seventies, early eighties, that the locus ceruleus degenerates in Alzheimer's disease. But for for decades, um, you know, like all the pathologists knew about it, but none of the neuroscientists were actually studying it. Um, so it was never it was never clear whether um, this loss of norepinephrine neurons in the locus ceruleus uh, was specific to the locus ceruleus, whether it was um, it had some functional role in the initiation or progression of Alzheimer's disease or whether it was just sort of collateral damage from a dying brain. Uh, And so, you know, that persisted really until about 10 years ago when people started looking in rodent models of Alzheimer's disease and manipulating the locus ceruleus neurons and actually were able to show that loss of locus ceruleus neurons exacerbates both Alzheimer's-like pathology and cognitive deficits in the rest of the brain. Um, So, um, you know, and most recently it's been discovered that... um, one of the first kinds of Alzheimer's-like neuropathology you can see in, in people, and these are relatively young, cognitively normal people who don't have Alzheimer's disease yet, um, but um, the first sign of any Alzheimer's-like pathology is the appearance of a pathogenic form of a protein called tau, which forms the neurofibrillary tangles that are, uh, that are found in Alzheimer's disease in the locus ceruleus in people as young as you know, 25, 30 years old. Now, whether those people would actually go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, we don't know because these were post-mortem samples from people who died of other other causes. But just just the idea that Alzheimer's-like pathology can appear decades before any cognitive impairment would ever appear, um, and specifically in the locus ceruleus, maybe gives us a clue that these neurons are, for some reason, selectively vulnerable to neurodegenerative processes. Um, and might and might actually have a role in in the initial genesis and propagation of the disease. Are there any thoughts about what makes them particularly susceptible? Because you, it, there's yeah. also an indication that may, this may be the case in Parkinson's disease as well. Early that's that's right. Yeah. So so in Parkinson's disease, locus ceruleus neurons also um, degenerate early. Uh, they show pathology um, before dopamine neurons in the substantia nigra that are responsible for the motor deficits. Uh, so what makes a locus ceruleus neuron more vulnerable? Um, the, the first answer is nobody knows, uh, but, but there are a few ideas. So, um, so for one thing, cat- the catecholamine neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and dopamine, themselves um, can cause oxidative stress. And so you have these neurons that are producing neurotransmitters uh, that can, that can you know, damage the terminals and damage the proteins um, in those terminals and cause degeneration on their own. Uh, so, um, because they can get oxidized and they can lead to uh, reactive oxygen species, uh, which can then cause damage in the cell. Now, normally these neurotransmitters are sequestered inside of synaptic vesicles. So you need to get the neurotransmitter into a synaptic vesicle so it can get released during neurotransmission, but it's also a way to protect the neuron away from a toxic chemical that it needs. Um, and so there's some evidence that the, the protein that puts 
catecholamines in the synaptic vesicles called the vesicular monoamine transporter 2. There's some, um, there's some recent evidence that, that that transporter protein is compromised in Parkinson's disease, which would, so that would cause more of the norepinephrine and dopamine to just be in the cytosol where it can get uh, oxidized and cause damage. So just the fact that it's, it is a noradrenergic or a dopamine neuron itself makes it more susceptible. The other thing that I, and, and I, I haven't seen much evidence on this, but when I think about a locus ceruleus neuron, you have the cell body in the brainstem, and you have projections all the way to the very front of the cortex. So these are pretty much the longest neurons in the central, in, well, except for the spinal cord, obviously, <laughs> in, in the brain, right? These are the longest neurons in, in the brain. And, you know, spinal cord neurons are longer, but most of them are myelinated, so this is the myelin sheath uh, that, that sort of protects them and aids in the, in the propagation of the action potential. Locus ceruleus neurons are not myelinated. So you have like these super long, really thin, what I think of as fragile axons and fibers and projections that have to stretch all the way from the brainstem to the frontal cortex. And they're, ascent, they're not myelinated, so they're kind of sitting there unprotected. And so any kind of oxidative stress or neuroinflammation or neurodegeneration, um, I, I kind of I think of them as, as just being sort of naked out there and vulnerable. And there's, um, there's a fair bit of evidence that, that the death of locus ceruleus neurons is, is kind of a dying back procedure. So the first thing, the first thing, the first problem that they have is you start losing fibers and you start losing norepinephrine and projection regions. And it's not until much later in the disease that the cell bodies start dying. So I, I kind of think, I think that locus ceruleus neurons are more vulnerable because their, their fibers and projections are vulnerable and exposed to any other insults in the rest of the brain. So if, um, if locus ceruleus pathology is a precursor for Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, yeah. where, where is the decision point <clears throat> when someone who has a bad locus ceruleus mm. develops AD or PD? Right. Yeah, that's, so that's what's a determining factor. Yeah, that's that? a really good question. Well, some of it is probably genetic, right? So there, there are certainly genetic risk factors um, and environmental risk factors for for both of these diseases, and and they're different. So, for example, mutations in alpha synuclein, um, which is the main component of Lewy bodies, um, which are the protein aggregates you see in Parkinson's disease. Um, so, so mutations in alpha synuclein predispose to Parkinson's disease. Whereas um, mutations in amyloid precursor protein that makes the uh, the amyloid that comprises the plaques mutations in those genes predispose people to Alzheimer's disease. So some of it, so some of it could just be genetic vulnerability. Um, but the locus, but again, you know, the locus ceruleus neuron seems to be um, susceptible to many different kinds of damage. So whatever whatever other pathologies are starting to happen in the rest of the brain. If they're causing neuroinflammation, if they're causing oxidative so, stress, I would expect the locus ceruleus. So do you, do you see um, in, in a post um, in an autopsy um, people who die of Alzheimer's and then people who die from Parkinson's disease? Mm-hmm. Do are do they see for Parkinson's disease? Do they see alpha synuclein accumulations and also some tau or or 
What are the other ones? The ones inside the cells? Uh, oh, so that's uh, the tau. The tau. In, and, um, or, or the, the amyloid. The, yeah, the, the yeah. amyloid. So if, if, it's, if it's kind of a race between the two, right? <laughs> Um, you know, a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Yeah. So then what you're talking about is a race between the two, right? Then you, you, would, you would think that the people who die of Alzheimer's, they'd also have some pathology that's similar to Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So, so I don't think, I mean, it's a complicated question. So I, I don't think that, I don't think the degeneration of locus ceruleus neurons defines either of those two diseases, right? So this disease, right. so, so those diseases are, are they're defined by their by their protein pathology, right? So so Alzheimer's is is like when you go to diagnose Alzheimer's disease, you can't diagnose it until post mortem and you see plaques. Otherwise, it's just some other kind of dementia, yeah. right? And and Parkinson's disease is Louis you know is Louis bodies and the degeneration of substantia nigra dopamine neurons. I mean, those are the definitions of the diseases. So so the 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 death of the locus ceruleus neurons does that does not yeah but the, the question becomes where do these these um these plaques and where do the where does this alpha synuclein accumulation comes from right so the implicit in in your in your thesis that the first place we see anything any problems in people is the locus ceruleus mm-hmm. right implies that now, the development from locus ceruleus to to plaques and alpha synuclein mm-hmm. comes from that, right? Just just based on chronology. Sure, sure. Right. So then, in that so, case, okay, you would so, think, so, you would so think so that when they look for for um, death of dopamine neurons in the compacta, mm-hmm. that at sometimes they would they would find plaques in cortex as well. Right? So there when is, doing the pathology. So there certainly is. So there certainly is some comorbidity between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So so people so people with Alzheimer's disease, I think, are at higher risk to also have Parkinson's and vice versa. And in fact, cognitive impairment is one of the non-motor common non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So so again, I think you know when you're looking in Parkinson's disease and you see early alpha synuclein pathology in the locus ceruleus. You look in Alzheimer's disease and you see early tau pathology in the locus ceruleus. So, yeah, so what's, what's triggering those? Why, you know, why are you getting one kind of pathology in one disease and one kind of pathology in the other disease, but both in the same kinds of neurons? That I, I you know, that I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I don't know. But, but again, my, my suspicion would be that it's linked to genetic vulnerabilities. Um, so that, so that these, um, you know, so that these these proteins or the or the proteins that interact with them make them more prone to hyperphosphorylation or aggregation or whatever it is, uh, or environmental toxins. So, for example, um, you know some of the some of the toxicants that are found um, found in the soil. You know, the people using agriculture those, those seem to those seem to impact alpha synuclein and and the dopaminergic system much more than than any of the the um, the plaques in the Alzheimer's system, you know, just because of the, the specificity of their toxicity being taken in by the dopamine or norepinephrine transporters. So um, so that would be my guess. But I think the locus ceruleus neurons, because of their morphology, um, because of their their projections, are, are probably vulnerable to all different kinds of insults. Do we see, I mean, these are very conserved throughout evolution, right? I mean, do we see these sorts of um, oxidative effects in primates and in young primates mm. and 
Well, <laughs> that's, yeah, so that's an interesting question. I mean, so non-human primates don't get Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Um, you can see pathology. You can see, you know, tau and plaque pathology in aged non-human primates, but they don't get dementia. And I don't think anybody understands why that is. I'm totally is. embarrassed that I don't know. What, what do the lesion studies tell us about LC phenotype? What do the lesion studies in um, so in the context of these diseases? No, just in, I mean there must have been lesion studies. I don't know those. Do you know anything, Charlie? That no. Oh, sure. I, so right. So, so the, yeah. No. No. There's <laughs> been. I mean, there, yeah. There's certainly been many um, many studies where the locus ceruleus has been lesioned and you know and, and tested for you know for sure. one behavior or yeah. another. You know, locus ceruleus lesions tend to um, you know they can cause some learning and memory deficits. Uh, they they can decrease attention and arousal. Um, what are the, they increase seizure susceptibility. What are the motor effects in Alzheimer's? Because presumably, if you're losing LC afferents, you're also mm-hmm. losing the downstream stuff. Has any of that been teased out, or are there selective loss type things that are only so Alzheimer's is not typically considered a motor disorder. Um, you know, the locus really is, isn't like a primary component of the motor system, like the substantia nigra dopamine neurons are. But the locus ceruleus certainly um, innervates some of those regions and, and can, um, can modulate their activity. You know, one, one interesting experiment we did was um, one of the most common rodent models of Parkinson's disease is a toxin called MPTP, uh, which has an interesting history. Um, uh, many years ago, there was... Um, a group of drug addicts were, you know, were uh, and, uh, injected themselves with, which, with, with what they thought was um, a heroin-like compound, but it turned out that the chemist got it wrong and made this tox, this MPTP toxin, and they got sudden onset Parkinson's disease because it killed all their dopamine neurons, which was, you know, obviously very, very tragic. But it provided neuroscientists with a tool to recapitulate the death of dopamine neurons in Parkinson's disease. So people have injected mice and mice with MPTP for for decades um, to try to recapitulate some of the Parkinson's disease phenotypes. And MPTP does a great job of killing dopamine neurons, but the mice don't really have much of a motor disorder. Uh, And so so one thing that we know happens in Parkinson's disease is the death of locus ceruleus neurons. But if you give MPTP to a mouse, the locus ceruleus neurons don't die. So we wondered whether... Part of the, the part of the reason that mice weren't showing a motor disorder when you killed the dopamine neurons is because you weren't also killing the locus ceruleus neurons. So what we decided to do was um, was test the contribution of norepinephrine to a motor phenotype by giving MPTP to normal mice and also giving MPTP to norepinephrine deficient mice. And we made these norepinephrine deficient mice by knocking out dopamine beta hydroxylase, which is the um, biosynthetic enzyme that I mentioned before that converts dopamine to norepinephrine. So these dopamine beta hydroxylase knockout mice completely lack norepinephrine. The locus ceruleus cells are dopamine cells at that point. So the locus ceruleus neurons, uh, the neurons are intact and they're probably synthesizing and releasing dopamine, but they are not making any norepinephrine at all. So, um, and, and we specifically wanted to look in old mice because aging is the number one risk factor for Parkinson's disease. So when we gave MPTP to, to old normal mice, um, we saw that, um, 
Again, they lost lots of dopamine, but we didn't really detect any motor disorders. Before we could even give MPTP to the dopamine beta-hydroxylase knockout mice, when we aged them long enough, we actually saw a motor disorder just in the dopamine beta-hydroxylase knockout mice. So the loss of norepinephrine, at least in older animals, itself causes Parkinson's-like motor deficits, whereas the, whereas the loss of dopamine does not. So what about a rescue strategy? What do you think? A re- what kind of rescue strategy? An LC, a norepinephrine rescue strategy. Oh, yeah. These sorts of so I was going to ask a question about that in terms of the converse experiment, say, primate. So you take an MPTP uh, primate, and yes. then you compromise the locus ceruleus. Is it a lot worse? Well, so that's the difference. So in non-human primates, if you give MPTP, the locus ceruleus is affected, which is not nice. So if you give MPTP to a non-human primate, you see Parkinson's like motor deficits. I would argue that at least part of that is because you're also killing those ceruleus neurons. So is it all of it? No. <laughs> no, I don't think it's I don't think it's all of it. Uh, but um, in terms of therapeutics, you know, um, it's clear that in, in many of these you know, neurodegenerative diseases, you know, take Alzheimer's, for example, that the neuropathology begins years, probably decades before any symptoms, right? So, um, so as soon as people, so people go to the neurologist when something is wrong. So as soon as people start, start saying, oh, you know, having trouble remembering things, maybe I should go to a neurologist and get tested. At that time, their brain is already full of neuropathology. So the neuropathology starts and has a very long prodromal stage before the the actual cognitive impairments and cell death set in. So since we know that locus ceruleus neurons are some of the first neurons to show any pathology, um, if we can have early detection, and we know we'd have a, a, a pretty long, a pretty large window with which we could still manipulate the locus ceruleus neurons before they die, before the pathology becomes completely rampant in the rest of the brain and starts killing the cells, which is irreversible. So that's something that we're very interested in. Why does MPTP not kill LC neurons in mice? What's the difference? So that's a a difference at the cellular level between mice and primates, right? Mice and primates are different? Yeah. No. So so a lot of times we we think about the difference between mice and primates. At least we... We try to convince ourselves that the cell itself is still the same. It's just the connectivity is a little bit more complicated, and mm-hmm. then you get a more complicated animal. But yeah. now we're talking about, at the cellular level, that cell itself is very different from a cell in a different species. So even, yeah. even if we were to study the electrophysiology and the molecular effects of um, some disease model in a mouse, it may have nothing to do with the disease in primates. Yeah. That, that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. I mean, so you give it. I mean, there's even difference between <clears throat> between MPTP toxicity in mice and rats. You give MPTP to a rat, nothing happens. Yeah. Right. So, you know, um, so I, I don't think anybody has completely figured that out. I mean, so the reason that MPTP kills dopamine neurons is because it's it's converted to uh it's converted to mpp plus and then the mpp plus is um taken up by the dopamine transporter and causes um you know oxygen oxygen damage and stress 
So, um, and inhibits mitochondrial function and, and all that. Um, so as far as I know, MPP plus can be taken up pretty well by both the dopamine transporter and the norepinephrine transporter. So there's no reason why it, it couldn't get into the neurons. Um, both dopamine and norepinephrine, as I mentioned before, both themselves can be toxic to neurons. So I, I think it's, I think it's a mystery. Uh, another mystery. Another mystery is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of toxins that have specificity that we don't understand. One of the most common ways, experimental ways, um, to lesion the locus ceruleus in animal models is another compound called DSP4. So DSP4 selectively lesions locus ceruleus neurons. It doesn't lesion substantia nigra or VTA dopamine neurons. It doesn't even lesion the other noradrenergic cell groups in the brain. Just the <laughs> locus ceruleus. Go figure. It's a mystery. Can you rescue the um, motor deficiencies by, um, like, injecting norepinephrine back into the locus ceruleus? Mm. In, you mean in the, uh, you know, like in the Parkinson's mm -hmm. models? Yeah. yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty interesting question. So, um, so we have tried we have tried restoring norepinephrine to old dopamine beta hydroxylase knockout mice. That does not improve their motor deficit. In fact, it, it makes it a little bit worse. So that what that says to me is that it's it's not the lack of norepinephrine at the time that you do the motor test that's important, but it's the lack of norepinephrine, you know, over the months and months and months that the mouse has been alive that dysregulates some other system. And the other system that we think it's dysregulating is the dopamine system. So uh, so norepinephrine provides excitatory drive onto dopamine neurons, onto midbrain dopamine neurons. So when you lose norepinephrine, uh, those dopamine neurons become hyperexcitable because they're trying to compensate for the lack of this excitatory drive. And so, um, so at least some of the phenotypes we see in the old dopamine beta hydroxylase knockout mice are due to overproduction and misregulation of dopamine. And so actually we can we can rescue some of the dyskinesia phenotypes in those animals by actually blocking dopamine receptors, not stimulating norepinephrine. So it's a, there's a, there are complicated interactions between the norepinephrine and dopamine systems. They talk to each other and they regulate each other's activity. And so if you have dysregulation of one, uh, it, it usually impacts the other as well. One other question. We're talking about all these, like, you know, potential genetic, you know, differences that may be occurring in these you know, adrenergic neurons that may sort of predispose an individual to potentially have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. Um, your other line of research is looking at addiction. And there's been, again, sorry for the uh, pulling what's been learned about the dopamine system and applying it to the norepinephrine system, but there's, yeah. <laughs> but there's been, you know, a suggestion that, you know, um, you can selectively breed animals that have different sort of phenotypes, um, drug addiction like phenotypes, high responder, low responder animals, you know, stuff from um, Huda Kiel's group um, and others. Um, and you see differences in sort of the dopamine neurons, sort of like phenotype between these sort of, you know, subgroups of animals. And I'm just wondering, is there any evidence of that within the locus cereus in that you see, you know, has anybody even looked in this in like high responder, low responder animals? Has anybody even looked in the LC neurons? I mean, yeah. So not, not much. Um, the one person who has done the most of that is Jay Weiss, 
uh, who's at, um, who's a colleague of mine at Emory. So he has selectively bred animals for depression-like phenotypes. So um, the classic depression test is the four-swim test, where you take a rat or a mouse and you put it in a bucket of water and um, you see how much it, it struggles versus floats. And the floating behavior is thought to maybe represent like a depressive-like behavior, whereas the struggling and swimming is more like an active coping behavior, which, you know, not to anthropomorphize too much, but, but the main reason that people think that is because these are, it's an antidepressant-sensitive test. So antidepressants increase swimming and struggling and decrease immobility in the test. So whatever you want to think about what the behavior represents from a human emotion standpoint, um, the, the main point is it's an antidepressant-sensitive test, and it, and it can predict the efficacy of, of antidepressant drugs. So, um, so the interesting thing is that he's bred, so he's bred animals for different activity in the four-swim test. So he has the high swimmers and the low swimmers, and, um, and they have... And, and what he's actually gone back and done is test is not only tested them for other depression-like phenotypes, but tested them for addiction-like phenotypes. And what he's found is that the animals that he tried to breed for depression end up having more profound addiction phenotypes than many animals that were selectively bred for addiction. So, for example, um, some of these low-swimmer rats that he bred for, for depression consume more alcohol than the alcohol-preferring rats that were bred um, in Indiana. So depression is the precursor to addiction. Well, at, at least they may be linked, for sure. I mean, I, think, I don't think anybody would argue that, the, that um, you know, depression and stress and anxiety are not a risk factor um, or, uh, for, for either developing addiction or for relapse. Um, so to get back to the locus ceruleus, what he's found is that in these... Um, uh, in, in some of these selectively bred animals that consume more or less either psychostimulants or alcohol or whatever, uh, he can identify very distinct differences in the activity of the locus ceruleus neurons and in their interaction with the VTA dopamine neurons. Uh, so he's he's recently, you know, there's been a, a he's published a few really nice papers recently um, looking at the uh, the relationship between locus ceruleus activity. VTA activity and proclivity to take drugs of abuse. So that's so. So you, that's he's he's done some of it, and then um, I think it was it may have been Eric Nestler's group or one of his collaborators uh, who's looked a lot at social defeat stress and the effects of social defeat stress, the circuitry behind it. And so what he's found is, so and um, so mice. Um, that go through social defeat paradigms where they're basically beat up by a bigger resident mouse and then go on to display uh, depression-like behaviors. The um, see if I'm going to get this right. So the so there's a lot of individual differences in the way that mice respond to these the social defeat stress. So there's some mice that become very susceptible and display a lot of depression-like behaviors, and then there's resilient mice that don't. And the the, the I think I think I think it's that the resilient mice have low VTA activity but high locus ceruleus activity, and that the susceptible mice have high VTA activity and low locus ceruleus activity. I think that's I think that's the relationship. I'm gonna have to go back and read the papers. I can't remember exactly, but um, 
but yeah, but there but there are differences in in um, in the activity of the different catecholamine neuro populations, and again, there's a lot of crosstalk between them, and so the locus ceruleus appears to be controlling the activity, at least in part, of these VTA dopamine neurons that then go on to um, to uh, invoke either resilient or susceptible depression behaviors in response to stress. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's been great having you here, David Weinschenker. This is a neuroscientist workshop. <laughs> <laughs>